welcome to another episode of Drumversations. What it do? The podcast. The podcast. I am Ruth Lomax. Ruthie. And who are you? I'm Mark Lomax. And it has been a while. Oh my gosh, we've missed this so much. We've missed you all. Life has been moving. Um, so we've we've been kind of distracted and unable to really dedicate some time to the podcast, but not distracted. I mean, there's been some serious stuff happening. Distracted. We've been interrupted. Interrupted. There you go. So, gosh, since the last time we talked, uh, the election has happened. Yep. So, Dr. Mark, how, what are some thoughts you had just initially before we kind of get into today's topic about the election? Democracy is not something that happens to you. It's something you do. So while the election of Biden and Harris is better for the country, it's not a, um, a, a solution to a lot of the problems that are going on. So we've still got a lot of work to do. True that. All right. And so, you know, we've had a couple things going on in our family where we're back to a quartet, which is amazing. COVID quartet. Yeah. So our daughter (laughs) is home from Penn State um, where she had an amazing um, semester, first semester. And we're just really enjoying the time being here. But we wanted to come to you guys today just to kind of wrap up what has been a crazy year and just kind of preparing for us to go into the new year. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to talk about some some subjects that, as I've paid attention to my husband's drumversations. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have paid attention. And something that came up, um, a couple, well, it, it kind of, I guess it kind of always comes up because it's something we talk about as a family, but I just was curious to see if other people are interested in this topic. And so um, what the heck? We're going to talk about it today. So mediocrity. What the heck? What the heck? What the foo? We're going to talk about mediocrity in the arts. Um, so I don't know. I don't talk about that on Friday drum conversations. It, it, it comes up in... We talk about that. We talk about it, but... You don't even realize it, Mark, but you talk about it. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, as as artists and, you know, content creators and consumers of culture, a lot of times, you know, we find ourselves kind of like, why aren't we liking what popular culture likes? And so we were having this conversation earlier today because there are, you know, certain things that are out there right now that I'm just like, that's not that's not resonating with me. And why is it resonating with folks um, in mass in the mainstream? And why is it that like what we do does not resonate? You know, we we love our audience and. We've got a growing what audience. What we do does resonate. The, the issue is the mainstream culture is about substance versus spectacle. Explain and that. That's, so substance versus spectacle means that what you see in the main often is um, as superfluous or sp- spectacular as possible without going deep 
to appeal to as many people as possible because it's the commodification of art, right? So if it looks uh, crazy or big or fantastical and um, it feels good for a hot second, you know, that's going to sell in the next three months. And then you got to come back and give people another shot in the arm of dopamine or what have you, as opposed to COVID vaccine, COVID, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, substantive art that puts something on people's minds. Right. And there's a possibility with art that people won't like it. So you can't create as big of a um, sales funnel to, to the to a certain extent for authentic art as you could for popular art. I mean, that's always been the case. The issue is in a time for me anyway, as an artist in a time where the issues that the culture face are so real and relevant and present in the culture. Like this stuff is happening every day from COVID to police murder, state sanctioned murder to, you know, the racial wealth gap to genderism, sexism, ableism, all the isms. You know, the fact that we're not seeing artists in the popular space um, really engage these issues substantively the way we did in the 60s and 70s is problematic. And so I think I would reframe to a certain extent, um, your thesis statement is not that it's not resonating. It's just that <laughs> my thesis statement. Yeah, your thesis statement that you know <laughs> art's not resonating or the work we do is not resonating. I think the 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 bigger issue is that um, the corporatocracy that drives commercial art is really working overtime to obfuscate or prevent or even curate certain narratives that keep the populace from engaging these more substantive issues by releasing, you know, crap that might give us, and that's my opinion, crap. <laughs> it might be good crap, but it's not really, you know, helping the public engage these issues in a healthy way. It's like junk food. Like it tastes it's junk good, food. Yeah, yeah. but it's not really good for you. It's like our COVID diet. Yeah. You know, it's made us feel better, but it's not been good for us. <laughs> well, so then, you know, how do you, how do you, I guess when you think about your own um, artistic output and um, how folks are digesting it, how do you then, how do you then work within that? Um, because, I mean, we're in our basement right now doing a podcast that who knows how many people listen to. But I mean, I think that like you're pushing out really amazing content every week and, you know, and a lot of times it's just family that's like it's resonating with or that folks are listening to. How do we get it to where we're at that place where the mainstream is able to check it out? Well, I mean, like we were saying earlier if we do stuff just because we want it to be popular or elevate to a certain status in the main, then I think we're on the wrong path. You know, so part of that is I don't care yeah. who's hearing or listening or engaging because there are things that I know as an artist and as a human being, as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a citizen of this country that has not accepted me as a full human being, let alone citizen, 
things that I have to say and do. But you've been at this for such a long time. Like, when is it your time? I don't, honestly, it is a frustrating thing to think about kind of the body of work that we've created over the last 20 years and seeing, you know, folks do much less and receive much more in terms of return on investment. That is absolutely frustrating. Um, it's frustrating for a lot of reasons. It's frustrating because I still have to work six jobs while creating world-class art. I still have to, you know, find ways for, for my ensemble to, you know, make a decent living for ourselves while knowing that we're doing things that are pushing envelopes artistically, are, um, you know, influencing other artists who have bigger platforms and right. what they're doing. Like, we see it. We see folks copying our approach absolutely. to things, right? Yeah, that we, is absolutely frustrating. Yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I say that it's frustrating because I do absolutely want to reap benefits from the work that allow me to do more work, right? I, I do think that once we've done something amazing and it gets the critical acclaim that says, this is amazing, that it's kind of jacked up, that on Monday morning, I still got to go to a job, a nine to yeah. five, right? Yeah. But by the same token, there, there, are time, there are some types of art that are going to go against the grain of the approved narrative in the mainstream because it must. And there may not ever be a time which your time when you're doing that kind of work. Because in order for it to be your time, and I say this still having to struggle with the, con the concept that it may never be, quote unquote, my time, hmm. right? There are artists who do amazing work in their lifetime, and it's not until 50, 60 years after they die that the world really catches up to it. I mean, Bach, nobody cared about Bach when he was alive. Like, everybody recognized that Bach was an amazing musician, an amazing improviser. That's before classical music was completely, you know, through composed. I mean, Bach was, he was improvising preludes and fugues. I mean, he had such a mind where he could not only play in the style so perfectly, but he could predict what other performers would do and he would make bets about it. You know, hey, you know, that performer is going to do this or that and he'd be right because he really knew um, the style. Um, and it wasn't until several years after he died that somebody looked at his work and said, wait, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, while he was alive, people thought it was too difficult. People thought that, uh, well, they told him that it wasn't stuff that, quote unquote, the amateur performer could play because nobody had radios back then. You know, the, the popular composers were, you know, doing exactly what happens now. They were com composing music that people could play at home who weren't professional musicians. Those were the folks making the big dollars. So people would come to Bach's performances, but they weren't buying his music. He wasn't getting published en masse until after he died, right? Now, that sucks. Yeah, because what I want to stop you there. Um I think for a lot of folks, the, the saying we want to give folks their flowers while they're here range true. Yeah, I mean, but that's a colloquialism that doesn't necessarily ring true for the, the commercialized aspect of what we do. 
So how how do we get? I guess what what do we need to do for an artist like you? I mean, you're. If I knew that, we we how would old be are doing you? It. So how old are you for for the? I'm folks? 41. I've been doing this 20 plus years. I, I mean, I released my first album when I was 19 years old. And yet we're so still, we're here. still here. But the thing is, when I put that first record out. I gave it to people in the industry that I, well, let me even back up. So when I was in high school, I was working with who's who of the jazz industry. I knew people who were executives at record companies and I was pushing even then to be part of the mainstream when I was a kid. I thought I was going to be like Tony Williams, who was making a splash at 16 years old with Miles Davis. That's what I thought I was going to be. And the folks that I knew who I called uncle this or uncle that in the record industry, they said, you know, the main thing right now is to graduate high school and then we'll talk. I graduated high school. They still didn't want to talk. And I pursued mainstream efforts to present my work and nobody was hearing it. That's why I became an entrepreneur because I knew how important my work was, at least to me. And I knew that if nobody else wanted to invest in it, I had to. And so here we are at 41, 45 albums later, and I'm still in a position where I have to do that myself. And so I cannot, as frustrating as it may be, I cannot depend on the market to see value in work that does not yield or has not been seen as a value because it's deep. Right. The 400 is eight and a half hours of music over yeah. 12 albums. No, no record company is going to pick that up and sell that because the sense <laughs> is that it's too much. Right. And I think they're downplaying the engagement of the audience. They're thinking the audience is, is not sophisticated enough to deal with that. Whereas I think my audience listens to music like I do. Well, because it, a lot it, of the people I talk to do. Right. right so right, the thing right, right. is, at this point, I have to think about legacy. And and you made a really um, interesting point today that I hadn't thought about is that you have a cult following in All Europe. All the world. Specifically, though, in Europe, you know, folks are really into what you're doing. And I just think it's really interesting that that's not, I mean, it, maybe it's not that interesting. Maybe it's kind of what we expect. But folks stateside are not into it. And I think even when we think about your work as an activist, I see the same kind of disconnects. But that's exactly why the mainstream music industry will not touch me with a 10-foot pole. But I mean, let's even talk about your activism. Well, but, that, but that's what Aside I'm saying. Aside from that's what I'm saying. who even you are as a musician. It's the, same, it's the same thing to me. Right. So the mainstream music industry won't deal with me because, well, what I've been told even recently, you, you were there for some of those conversations, is that if I separated my art from my politics, my career would go much further. Right. But then in terms of my politics and activism, because I ground my advice to activists, because I'm not out there in the street. I don't feel like that's my place. Right. Um, I feel like my place is to advise those who are out there because I'm spending the time doing the research and they're rightfully so these much younger folks are out there in the street with righteous anger and indignation. My role is to say, okay, now how do we focus that anger and indignation, that energy into outcomes? 
Here's what historically has happened. Here's where we missed. Here are the opportunities and let them go from there. Right. But because, again, my activism is grounded in, you know, thousands of years of history because I don't start with the civil rights movement. I don't start with slavery. Right. I understand how societies worked prior to European colonialism and the ideal outcome for anything right now is more akin to, you know, a socialist approach to um, an economy that works for everyone, as opposed to a capitalist economy that suggests that somebody always has to lose. Wait People a ain't second. trying to hear that. Wait a second. <laughs> Are you saying you're a socialist? I'm absolutely a socialist. A democratic socialist. Um, you know, I feel like the will of the people should be heard at all levels of government and government's role should be to ensure that all of its citizenry has, at the very least, all of its basic needs met. Are you a little nervous about putting that out there like that? No. Okay. I can't be. If I'm nervous about anything, it means I'm not doing the right thing. You know, it's like Dave Chappelle said, I don't apologize for anything I say up here on this stage, right? I can't be sorry about it because I know that what I've come to think of as a politics of humanity is the best thing for all of us because it's human-centered, right? Politics in this context or any context is really a negotiation of power, right? So thinking about power being leveraged and used and deployed even in the service of all human beings in balance with the earth and the cosmos is how we lived prior to the advent of European imperialism. Can I, can I go a bit deeper with something you just said? Mm -hmm. Because this actually may segue nicely into what I wanted to talk about. Your study and understanding of metaphysics uh -huh. and cos ancient African cosmology mm -hmm. Um, some folks may feel you're anti or non-Christian. I'm not Christian. Okay. And I'm not necessarily anti-Christian per se in terms of the values of the religion itself as an Eastern African or originating uh, religion. I am absolutely anti-Westernized, bastardized Christianity. Bastardized. Bastardized, meaning okay. that it has been... Um, appropriated and not just watered down, but used to uh, hurt people. You know, when, I mean, James Cone said, if you are sitting in the pew every Sunday and what you're hearing is not elevating your agency or capacity to engage on behalf of your people uh, empire, then you're being enslaved in a different kind of way, right? That's why they say opi uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. The way Christianity was taught to black America, who have the lineage of slavery, was absolutely to keep us powerless. And so I'm anti that, absolutely. Like, I could care less about a Christianity that does not allow for me to engage my whole self in the service of my people. Because when I read the Christ story, that's exactly what he did. If the cat existed, and if not, then it's a great allegory to show what potential we have as human beings to uh, create change and transformation in the world. So if we're talking about this as two 
parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it would be just interesting for for listeners to know how do we kind of govern our household around spirituality? I think what we have tried to do is be where we are. So there was a time where I personally and you, we were involved in, you know, a black church and we're absolutely Christian. We prayed in Jesus name and everything like that. And as we learned and grew, then we shifted that. And so we have one child, excuse me, who was baptized both in um, a Christian church in terms of being blessed when she was a baby and in a Catholic church. Well, Protestant and Catholic, both Christian, mm-hmm. right? And then we have another child who was not because in the seven and a half years between their births, we had changed. So one grew up with us saying, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of a prayer, and the other... I've prayed, you know, in the name of all that's good in the universe, you know, the I am that I am or the all or the creator or what have you, the universe, right? Um, and thanking the ancestors. And thanking the ancestors, Ashe and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that shows our evolution, right? Because personally, the way I was socialized was from a deficit-based spirituality. And nothing can happen when you're worried about you know, the negative aspects of something. But as soon as you realize that you are a part of the cosmos, part and parcel, like everything that we are made up from and of as human beings is absolutely in the cosmos, which means you are the cosmos. And if I am the cosmos, then I am also one with the universe. Then that means I can manifest just like the earth manifests. If I just get in touch with that vibration. I mean, how do you compose and create new art. That's creation. You know what I mean? That's manifesting. And it's not something you just do. It's something you definitely have to learn and develop a discipline around. But I felt like the church in general, as I learned it, was stifling because the art that I was creating was not welcomed in that space. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So how do you, how do you rectify? How do you not just rectify that, but but come to grips with, you know, creating something from your deepest, most authentic self and then your religious, you know, belief system and, and all that kind of stuff is, is saying that you're wrong. That's bull. I mean, for me, I definitely still identify as being a Christian. Now, here's the thing. I mean, I, I identify as being a Christian, however... I definitely would say I'm more like in line with maybe what a Unitarian deals yeah. with where I think in Jill Scott, she says, she says this as a lyric. She's like, sometimes, you know, I chant like a Buddhist. I, I, I shout like a Baptist and sometimes, you know, you, uh, she something else. But at any rate, I see so many different elements of, of so many different spiritual practices that I vibe with and I take part in, I believe in the, in the Jesus Christ story. Like I believe in that narrative, but Mm -hmm. I also believe in the narrative of, you know, Horus and and ISIS. There's no differentiation between the same language, different names. Yeah. And, And that's partly, I think artistically why things get dicey because folks, at 
the point, the gatekeepers, let's say, they're curating certain narratives, you know? And when you release an album, Isis and Osiris, you know... Folks don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with it because you're challenging the Western, you know, conceptualization of the Trinity. Even though we use the Greek and not the comedic terms, Asar and Aset, you know... And the the Greek terms would be... Uh, Isis and Osiris are the Greek terms. Oh, okay. Um, Asar, um, Asar, Aset, Heru is the is the um, comedic terms. Isis, Osiris, and Horus are the Greek terms, and that's the where the Trinity, uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, or Father, Son, Holy Ghost, when they took away the feminine ashe or the feminine aspect that balances that whole thing. That's the original Trinity, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or one of the conceptions mm-hmm. of the Trinity, because there was also uh, several um, iterations of the Trinity, even in ancient Kemet, or, or what the Greeks call Egypt or Egyptos, right? Um, um, I can't call them a name, but I mean, it's there. You know what Mark, I mean? Mark, do you feel like you have to explain a lot of this to folks? Like, <laughs> you've said a lot, mm-hmm. right, in the 20 minutes or so that we've been on air. And I'm wondering how this might also kind of explain some things about where you are at in terms of palatability for mainstream (laughs) folks, because I feel like a lot of the stuff that you're saying, even, you know, for for me, I I mean, sometimes I think people are like, huh, like it just Mm -hmm. Like, where did this come from? And I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. So we were talking, you, this you did say last week on Drumversations. You said you had to find um, your, li- like, like-minded folks. Mm-hmm. Like, you had to find your people. Yeah. And a lot of times, you still sometimes feel very isolated. Mm-hmm. But... You know, when you start, like, down this road, are folks just kind of glazed over? And, I mean, I know the answer because I've lived with you for 21-plus years. Yeah, you glaze over. I don't glaze over. Yes, you the, do. So yes, then that's, that's going to go into our next conversation <laughs> about how folks don't think that I'm at the same level as well, you. Well, it's not about being at the same level. It, so there, there are three things, I think, that... I glaze I can, over because I have ADHD, and well, I just yeah, glaze over. Yeah, there's that, of course. Well, I have ADHD too, but like, I probably just have ADD. I don't have adult onset. I got AD, all that hyper, everything, any of those acronyms. But that's because um, if you think about Amos Wilson's Awakening the Genius of the Black Child, it talks about how the, the processing power that we have as Africans in America is so much higher than others because we operate at different vibrational frequencies, which means... I mean, you think about Imhotep. This dude was a poet. He was an architect. He was, you know, an innovative medical person. He was this on this. He was, you know, what we would call today a renaissance man. And you bring that forward, you know, you think about George Washington Carver. You think about Paul Robeson. You think about um, Sojourner Truth. You think about um, Chimamanda and Gozadiche. You think, I mean, Europe has not produced people like that, minds like that. Right. Even during the Renaissance in Europe, there was kind of more of a general knowledge, but they didn't do stuff like create the pyramids. They can't figure that out in Europe. Like what I mean by in Europe, I mean, Western, you know, logic or or learnings or scholarship. 
That's because we operate differently. And when you tap into that, right, you begin to resonate in a different way. And so there are no less than three books written about the American education system called The Dumbing Down of America, you know, with different subtitles. And I think part of the reason why um, I might get the response that I get from certain people is because I read books that a lot of folks don't feel comfortable reading, right? And it's not that I'm smarter than anybody else. That's not the case. You know, I'm not saying that at all. I would never make that assertion. The difference is I've, I've read you know, books about Egyptology by Europeans and by Africans and by African-Americans. As an example, Egyptian Magic by Sir E. Wallace Budge, right? Who many African scholars, African-American scholars think he got, they, they say he got the translation wrong, but those were the resources available to me and I read those and then I read the, the ones by folks who look like me who corrected his, his misinformed scholarship, right? Um, I, you know, somebody asked us the other day, what is the first step you take to becoming a fully optimized human being? And the first step is just to educate yourself. You know, think about what you love and don't love, maybe even hate about yourself and try to figure out why. And that process of learning allows you to engage information in a different way. And the more information you engage, the more context you have for the next set of data that you engage which then allows you to draw conclusions, right? So my, the reason why I have like 300 credits or something like that almost when I graduated <laughs> undergrad is because I took every class. I took class in comparative anthropology. I took classes in African-American studies. I took classes in philosophy and psychology and music and everything because that's how my brain works, Yeah, you know? And, okay. and most of us are taught... You just go get the grades so you can get the job and you go. And so we have this very linear process. And my brain just doesn't work like that. Can you tell a funny story about um, a date pre-me where the person just kind of sat there? That wasn't funny. It was actually it is, sad. It's so hilarious, actually. I was on a date and we were talking about whatever we were talking about. And she asked me a question and I answered it. And at the time, she just kind of looked at me and was like, you're so smart. And I'm like, huh? I thought we were in a conversation. And then, you know, that was our last date because there was no real conversation. But like, as an artist, I've, I've been very public about my alignment personally with the tradition of the jolly or what the French call it, the griot. And the role and function of, of jolly in society is to be the holder or the bearer of the culture, right? And if that is the case, then my function as an artist in American society is to have context for why we are. And that can't start at 1619 with the enslavement of African peoples. Uh, and it, well, the enslavement of African peoples and being brought to North America, because for about 100, 150 years prior to that, they were taken down to the Caribbean and South America. It can't start there like at 1490, right? It has to start way before. Who were we? Who was, or what was civilization prior to enslavement? What was, what was civilization before Alexander the, the Greek or Rome or uh, any of that, right? What was Kemetic civilization? What was um, the Nubian civilization? Who were the Dogon? All, all of these historical data points that kind of 
give you this through line with all these different threads of, of human evolution, of um, uplifting humanity and dark ages and up and down and up and down. You know, we're in a dark age. Hmm. We, we, I mean, as intellectually um, advanced as our technology is in terms of computers and all that kind of stuff, we're actually way far behind our ancestors in terms of spiritual intellect and engagement. And I think that's why I get the response that I get from stuff, because I come from a whole different perspective. People want to talk about basic stuff. It's basic when you want to talk about racism as a public health system, a public health crisis, sorry. That's basic. And the perspective is wrong. Racism is not a public health crisis for black people. It is a public health crisis for white people. But we don't want to have that conversation. It's basic to talk about homelessness because there's no way in the world, no real reason in the world for America to have homelessness except for the fact that we value the poor as something that has to happen in a capitalist society, not value them in the sense that we take care of them and support them to have their basic needs met, right? They have, there has to be winners and losers. That's, that's basic. The more interesting conversation is how do we create culture where everybody has what they need so they can add value to you know, the society as opposed to folks being valued for how much value they extract from society, right? I mean, those are the conversations I think are more important and relevant to how we move humanity forward. But because we are so materialistic, because we believe so much in this dollar that's not even real, and God we trust is printed on our money. And like, that's not even, that's, that's, a, that's a construct, just like race. And so we feel like it's more important to reify constructs as opposed to deal with each other as human beings. And because we've not been educated in that way, it's a harder conversation. So when I get there, people are like, oh my God, here he goes. <laughs> I mean, I love that you just, because my next question was going to be like, why should folks care? And this is why you yeah, should care. Yeah, they should care. They should care because this is the stuff that brings us together. Like, I just talked about capitalism and how we value most people who have the, the most material acquisition, people who extract the most value from society, as opposed to doing what we need to do to ensure that everyone has their basic needs met. I mean, there, prior to colonialism, there were societies in Africa where there were no prisons, where there was no poor. Nobody was poor. Everybody went with um, whatever they needed because the society provided it. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't folks that, ha that didn't have mental health issues that couldn't really, you know, engage in normative society in a way that allowed them to be productive and all that kind of stuff. There were folks that absolutely lived on the outskirts of society, right? But by and large, uh, the society provided for itself in a way that um, did not have the social ills that we see now. I mean, you and I met someone just a few years ago who came from a culture where there was no word for orphan until very recently. Like, if you don't have a word for it, it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you don't have a word for orphans, there are no orphans, right? Because the society took care of its children. They placed value on their children in, to such an extent that if the parents, for some reason, you know, could not take care of that child, that child never went without a family, right? right? 
that's just not where we are. And that's why it matters, because if people care about themselves as individuals, then they have to, by extension, care about other individuals because you cannot be free and you cannot be wealthy and you cannot be healthy, happy and whole unless other people are healthy, happy and whole and free and wealthy. And so this is all part of a, a term you coined, which is called a politics of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, how do you feel about people? You, you, ta you talked a little bit about this earlier, but I mean, f folks may start like riffing off of your politics of humanity mm -hmm. and not giving you credit because right. that's, that's been... That's what happens. That's been the MO. So I, what do you want to tell this audience about doing that and about like calling folks out when they do that or... Well, so that's, that goes calling back to folks the whole... Calling folks in... Well, calling folks in. But that goes back to how we started the conversation about, you know, whether or not, you know, our work, our, our intellectual product, so to speak, is accepted or um, is valued in mainstream, you know, music industry or arts industry or American culture, what have you. I mean, if I identify as an artist who takes... The, excuse me, takes the role seriously as a griot, as I do, then what I've learned is the tension for me is knowing that your function is to do the work, period, point blank. Just do the work because that's your role. That's what society needs most from me Yeah, is to do the work and raise these questions and let the rest be the rest, right? But the, again, the tension is that I was raised in a society where there's a return on that investment of time and energy, right? So if you're good at something, you're supposed to be able to make a living on that thing and support your family and live in relative comfort because you're good at this thing, right? The people who are the best athletes make millions of dollars playing basketball, football, baseball, right. what have you. Right. The people who are really good with numbers um, and, and making predictive uh, bets about things, they're hedge fund managers, right? They, right? they work on the market and they make billions of dollars. The people who are really good at bringing product to market or products to market, you know, they're business owners or they work in industries where they are paid handsomely for, you know, their uh, skill sets. You know, I happen to be an artist who is pretty good at what he does and uses his work to raise questions that make people uncomfortable. And society's not going to reward me for that, which is problematic in a society that's supposed to have free speech, in my opinion. But I'm, again, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's to, to make people feel uncomfortable, not for the sake of making people uncomfortable, but for the sake of challenging our is 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 for the sake of becoming better people okay right okay i mean the 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 notions that guide my work have always been and i, I wrote this down when i was 18 i'll never forget identity authenticity and power those are absolutely the three things that society does not want any of us to really wrestle with right because if we fully understand who we are um individually and collectively then there's no room for society to tell us who we are. If we engage the world authentically from the basis, that fundamental knowledge of who we are, then we cannot be swayed one way or another based on some ideologue or 
demagogue who comes along and kind of, you know, uses the media to, you know, say stupid stuff and lie over 20,000 times from the White House, right? Mm -hmm. And if we fundamentally know who we are and we act authentically based on that fundamental belief, then we have a level of power and agency that allows us to create what we need to have to have a life that is good for all of us because power recognizes power, right? So if as individuals, we come together and we leverage our collective power, then we are collectively able to manifest society, culture, goodwill in such a way where people have what they need. Right? I mean, that's, that's what society was before this, I think, therefore I am foolishness. Yeah. Right? I am because we are meant that we leverage our collective humanity so that human beings had their basic needs met and were able then to just worry about adding value and live in balance with the planet and the cosmos. I am because we are is called... Ubuntu. I am because we are and because you are, I am. Because we are, I am. And, and kind of as we're wrapping up this, this conversation, um, we're going into the holiday season. Um, so many of us celebrate Christmas. Some of us celebrate Hanukkah. And some of us celebrate uh, Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa. And so I know in our family, we do both Christmas and Kwanzaa. And our, our daughters, well, particularly our 11-year-old, loves Kwanzaa. She really looks forward to it. We have um, a, a group of really close friends that we celebrate Kwanzaa with mm-hmm. on a yearly basis. And just thinking about the seven principles and just kind of ending this conversation, what are some things you want folks to remember about the seven principles? Understanding that Kwanzaa is not black Hanukkah. Yeah. <laughs> it is, there's actually... Christmas um, Hanukkah Yeah, there's actually... Uh, a whole a whole reason behind Kwanzaa. There's a whole set of um, set of like practices and routine and um, rituals and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want more, I mean there's there's thousands of um, resources. resources. And you know you can say what you want about the founder of Kwanzaa. We are not going to have that conversation <laughs> today. However, if that is something that folks are interested in having that conversation, we certainly can. Yeah. So we are not going to go there at all. I'm not even going to mention the names. Yeah. But as we think about the seven principles, which are really principles that I think in our family we live by year round. Yeah. What are some things that you want folks to know going into this season and ending 2020? So this, I think, is another reason why, as an artist, um, my work has been marginalized. Because when you think about the principles of Kwanzaa, which I'll go through here quickly in a second, it really does shift the um, aesthetic, the cultural um, outlook or perspective by which we live from one that is purely Eurocentric, I think, therefore I am, uh, to one that is Afrocentric, I am because we are, right? And when your artwork is that as well, folks just can't see it in a way that reflects themselves in what they're used to being and, and, and seeing and promoting and investing in, right? I mean, that's part of it, right? It, it's a 
totally different perspective and approach to music making. Like as a classically trained composer, I never try to write classical music. Like that's European music. They did it. I don't have to do that. My goal as an African-American is to use the tools that I learned, take the best from um, Euro, European co compositional constructs to create music that reflects who I am as an African in America, right? That's a, a, a whole different perspective, a spin mm -hmm. on what folks are used to. You know, you get elevated when you reflect the dominant culture. And that's just not my interest. And Kwanzaa is one of those things that does not reflect the dominant culture, but puts a holiday um, tradition in place that helps us celebrate our culture, right? So the Nguzo Saba are the seven principles of Kwanzaa. The first is uh, Umoja, which means unity. Uh, the second is Kujichagalia, which means self-determination. The third is Ujima, which is uh, collect Ujima, I'm sorry, which is collective work and responsibility. The fourth is Ujama, cooperative economics. The, the fifth is Nia, purpose. The sixth is Kuumba, creativity. The seventh is Imani, faith. And so when you think about what those principles mean, it means that as a people, as Africans in America, we are to recognize ourselves as a nation within a nation. Mm. Right? And that in and of itself is a radical thought in a country where you weren't even human right. for most of the time we've been here. Right? So to recognize ourselves in, our, in the fullness of our humanity and to then unite around our collective humanity, not knowing exactly where we're all from, but knowing that we all have a similar experience in this place called America, right? We can unite around core values. And these are seven of them, right? Unity, because we are, and because we are, I am, right? Kujichagulia, um, self-determination, power is the ability to define oneself and one's reality and make others believe that it's a reality of their choosing, right? When you're able to self-determine, call yourself by whatever it is you decide to be, then nobody can take that from you, right? We have been called nigger, we have been called slave, we have been called second-class citizen, we have been called colored, we've been called everything but what we are, right? And that's human, and that's African, and that's connected to this history of a continent from which everything sprang forth. Yeah. Question. Um, can folks that do not have the African ancestry... Everybody it, has African ancestry. Okay, so can everyone celebrate Kwanzaa? I mean, if you want to celebrate Kwanzaa and you are not of African descent in, in terms of identifying, right... The oldest, the oldest human remains were found in Africa. Everyone in science agrees that Africa is the place, uh, the fo foot of Mount Kilimanjaro is where... Lucy. Lucy and everybody else, you know, kind of just hung out in the Garden of Eden and then spread out from there, right? So I think it's valuable for people of European descent, which means Africa is further in their um, lineage then it might be for folks who are visibly of African descent to uh, ascribe to these principles because of how 
um, as uh, I think his name is Michael Bradley in the book Iceman Inheritance and other books that talk about um, the deficit mentality with which the Ice Age uh, imp imposed a certain culture of, of deficiency on Europe, right? Europe has no real resources. That's why they had to leave Europe and invade other areas like Africa to get resources. People, gold, uh, food, all that kind of stuff, right? So by ascribing to these African-centered principles, I think people of African descent and of European descent begin to get closer to their collective humanity, right? Unity is something that's important for black America and it's important for the diaspora, but it's also important for humanity in general. So I wouldn't be upset with folks who aren't visibly African to say, I want to connect with my deeper humanity. And in connecting with that humanity, I am also reaching out to other human beings, right? That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of work to do. I mean, because there <laughs> right? is there a risk of folks kind of co-opting Kwanzaa? Yeah, if you're, if you're doing and it And culturally from, appropriating yeah, Kwanzaa? Yeah, absolutely. If you're doing it from a Western European mindset, yes, you're absolutely co-opting and, and um, appropriating. But that's where kind of that deeper sense of wanting to connect comes, right? So here's the thing. Appropriation is real. But when you are authentically searching for your optimized human manifestation, what you do, you go inside and you embark on the spiritual path of becoming and you find the rest of humanity. But I think what scares white folks is that when they get to that point, they find blackness, <laughs> right? Because at the beginning, there was Africa, what we call Africa now, what was called Alkibilan or Ethiopia or Kush, you know, by our tongue. And we have lived and been socialized in a culture that, you know, tries its best to push us away from or keep us away from that African origin of civilization, as Sheikh Antijope writes in the book of that of the same title, that it's hard for people who are not of visible African descent. I mean, like, they mm -hmm. don't look black or African, mm -hmm. right? It's hard for them to come in, into harmony with the notion that they themselves are African, right? And I think dealing with these principles and really digging into them is one way to start that process. It is not the be-all. It is not the end-all. It's uh, uh, one step along this path, right? But the reason why I make it a point to be very vocal about all of us being from Africa is because American culture is all about differentiation. Anything that we can do to separate ourselves from others, we do. It's what capitalism is about, right? You start a business, I start a business, we have to understand our market differentiation mm -hmm. because that's competition, right? Um, white, black, purple, green, or blue, because of that phenotypical difference, we are somehow different, right? Uh, class, difference, uh, culture, difference, education, difference, uh, neighborhood, difference. But really, when it comes down to it, genetically, we're more alike, and while there are cultural differentiations by ethnic group, 
you know, fundamentally, we want all the same things, right? We want our, our children to do better than us. We want to be well-educated. We want to add value to society. We want to, you know, make our mark in a way that leaves the world better. I think holistically, these are people, things people want. We want to leave the world better than when we found it, right? I don't see any difference in that. You know, so going through um, the principles, Moja, Kujitagalia, Ujima, Ujama, Nia, Kuumba, Imani, or unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith, and using those principles as guiding principles for how we engage every day, mm -hmm. I think can help us uh, get past some of these, a lot of these, um, uh, what I'll call constructs, you know, the constructs of race, the constructs of class, uh, gender, all these things that separate us or keep us from being um, fully unified as a human family. All right. So that was a lot. Um, <laughs> I sure hope you all, um, you know, continue to listen to us and support us, support um, what we are doing here, um, support Drumversations, the Friday sessions. And I think this la this week is our last one um, yeah, December, for the year. What is this? Uh, December 11th. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud. So find us. We're excited to be back. And hope you all stay safe. Hope you wear a mask. Hope you're only going to the grocery store and necessary places. You're not hanging out at happy hour and brunch. Um, those things will return, hmm. but only if we all do our part now. Ashe. Ashe. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Rudy. Peace. Peace.